for Matthew, uh, to Matthew chapter 15, verse 26. Today we are going to talk about who Jesus is. But before we get into it, those of you who have been with us in the sermon series, how many of you are starting to feel sorry for the disciples? Let's just be honest. I mean, how many are starting to feel a little bad for them. Uh, in the chapter before, they were called stupid. Uh, one of the women trying to get prayer, she was called a dog. Today, Peter's going to be called Satan. And then their faith is going to be called little faith. They're going to basically be called runt believers, as one translation says. And they're going to be called stupid again in another way. So just within a few chapters of the Bible, the disciples are called stupid twice, Satan once, and lacking faith, uh, runt believers. Now, why is it I don't get upset with Jesus? Why is it I don't go to the Father and tell on Jesus? I accept Jesus because I know the Father loves us, and Jesus loves us, and the Holy Spirit loves us, and these names, these descriptions that we don't like when our children use them are actually good in adult conversation and mature conversation to show us that we're not as smart as we really think we are, and we need to humble ourselves under God. So if Jesus loves you enough to call you Satan, you better listen to him. Amen. Come on, can I hear an amen to that? If Jesus loves you enough to say, hey, knucklehead, you runt believer, why aren't you getting this? You need to love him. Now, does that give you the excuse and I the excuse to be mean and name-calling all the time? No. But are there times to use names? Absolutely. And I'll let you decide, uh, married couples, when you feel the right time is to use names. I'll let you decide when you want to do that and how much pain you can endure. Uh, I don't think it's a good idea. Let's put it that way. Uh, you call your wife stupid, you are not going to have a good night, and I don't think that's godly. Have I said to my wife, honey, you are acting foolish right now? Yes, I have. And if you're going to get mad at me, I'm being honest. I have because I thought my wife has done foolish things. She said the same thing about me. You're acting foolish. How many know we act foolish sometimes? Oh, it's a quiet Presbyterian church today. Where are the Pentecostals at? Where, where are my shouters at today? Oh, y'all don't talk about each other's behavior? Oh, come on. I was taught to never argue and never fight. You don't have, have a Christian marriage then. Christian marriages are going to argue and fight. And you at times have to use adjectives. Adjectives are not sinful. Read how many times foolish and folly and the fool is brought up in the book of Proverbs. So how can you ever have a conversation about wisdom without using that as a descriptive? Foolish, you know, uh, folly. How can you do it? You're not doing it honestly. And so a lot of you who think you're more spiritual than me, you're actually suppressing. You're suppressing. Now, honestly, if you're honest and you're saying, I've never really felt my wife has done anything foolish or my husband but it's never done anything foolish. You are amazing. We have a lake out here we would like to watch you walk on today. And uh, we'll get you out midway on a boat and just have you walk out there and show us how your wife or husband has never done anything foolish. That's awesome. We're ready for that. How many know I'm teasing a little bit? Okay, just a little bit. Let's go to Matthew chapter 15, verse 29. We're going to learn about another feeding here. It says, Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. How many are thankful for healing Jesus? 
Let us never uh, get used to hear, hearing about Jesus heal because there's nobody else like him. Muhammad never healed. Buddha never healed. Krishna never healed if he even existed. I mean, all these false uh, prophets. Joseph Smith never healed. Charles Taze Russell of the Jehovah Witnesses never healed. Jesus, my Jesus, come on somebody, is always healing. Hallelujah. And he's a healer today. And if you're sick and in need of healing, please come to these altars and we will pray in his name as the Bible commands us to. The Bible says he was healing and he was having a great time doing it. Verse 31, the people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, the blind seeing. They praised the God of Israel. This was a sign to them that the Messiah was among them. We've talked about that before. Let's keep going. Verse 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and, I, and they have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. Let's pause right here. How many know we've already had a feeding of 5,000? How many remember that? It's in the previous chapter. Uh, I mean, the previous verses of the same chapter. How many remember it? Okay, let's not be forgetful here. What is the difference here? Jesus was speaking for one day when the feeding of the 5,000 happened, and the disciples come to him complaining, Jesus, it's getting late. There's nowhere for them to go to eat. Do something. As if Jesus didn't know, right? Jesus calms the wind and waves, walks on water, but somehow he doesn't know what time it is. Come on. That's the feeding of the 5,000. And so Jesus is kind of responding back to them going, you just give them something to eat. Just, you, you, you're concerned about them, then you give them something to eat. Because I know what time it is, and I know it's worth their time being out here. And, hey, they can afford to miss a meal. Even back then, they could afford to miss a meal. They had a saying in the Middle East, I don't know how far back it goes, my wife's so beautiful the camel can't even carry her anymore. Because back then, beauty was seen in voluptuous, being big, being healthy. My young man got it right here. She's so beautiful, the camel can't carry her anymore. That's a saying. I didn't make it up. Don't get mad at me. It's a saying from the Arab people and from the Middle East, how far back it goes, we don't know. So even back then, they could have missed a meal. But this is different. Now Jesus is not just teaching one day, kind of being sassy with his disciples who are saying he should do something about it. This is three days preaching without any food, okay? So Jesus now comes to them and says, I have compassion. So if you want to know when Jesus will start feeling sorry for you in this service, it will be after I've preached to you for three days straight. That's when Jesus will start to have compassion. An hour-long service, he ain't feeling compassion. Two hours, he's not there yet. Anything less than a day, he's like basically just listen to your pastor and have a good service. Three days, he's going to be like, oh, come on, man. We got to do something about this. So that's the difference between the 4,000 and the 5,000. It is significant. 5,000, it's one day. They're interjecting, and then Jesus does the miracle. Here, it's three days, and he knows it's been too long. I know I have to do something about it. But he tests them and to see what they're going to do. So start again in verse 32. Jesus called his disciples to, to him, and he said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days, have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? Wah, wah. Can we all do that together? Wah, wah. 
Guys, we were feeling sorry for you. We were feeling bad you were getting called stupid in the verses prior to this. We felt bad for you getting called miniature faith, midget faith, small person faith, however it's appropriate to say it now. We feel bad for you. But why do you just make the same boneheaded mistake you did before? You're with Jesus. And if Jesus has already fed 5,000 and now he's telling you we need to feed some folk, why are you still looking at the natural resources? How many know at this time you might be a little bit different? I know we got to relate to them in some ways, but how many know at this time there might be some of you here that might just almost want to test Jesus? Be like, Jesus, can you make pizza? Jesus, can you make some orosco candules? Jesus. I, I, Jesus, I'm not even going to all these. I'm not calling up Grubhub. Jesus, I want to see how far we can take this. I heard one time, Jesus, you made a lot of wine. I know last time you did some salmon. Jesus, let's bring it all together. Let's do the wine. Let's do the fish. Let's have the crackers. Let's have this place be the best banquet we've ever seen. I don't know, but it seems like we probably wouldn't get it because we're no different than the disciples. So for the second time, they blow it. Instead of coming back with great faith, they say, Jesus, Jesus, come on, Jesus, Jesus. I mean, I know you're the son of God, but you probably forget things every now and then. We don't have enough food. Where are we going to feed all these people? Where are we going to get the food to feed all these people? Jesus once again says, how many loaves do you have? In the other story, he gets it from what? Where does he get his loaves and, and fishes from? A little boy. Here it says, how many loaves do you have? Jesus asked, seven, they replied, and a few small fish. How many know to bring snacks to church? Come on, this, this person knew to bring snacks to church. Little boy brought snacks to church. Jesus is going to make this, this snack multiply here, okay? He told the crowd to sit down on the ground, then he took the seven loaves and fish, and when he had given thanks... He broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. Notice the Revy here. Same thing from the 5,000. How does he disperse his food? Directly to the people or there are disciples involved? Disciples. Everybody say disciples. This is very important. I am not being allegorical in this. That means I'm not just taking this and applying it outside of its context. There is a literal lesson we are supposed to get in the narrative. Jesus does things through disciples to change the world. Yes, you can have your own relationship with Jesus. That's right. You go home today, Jesus is with you. You pray. You, you go to work tomorrow, Jesus is with you. But there are some things, somebody say some things, some things Jesus is not going to give you except through his disciples. Go to the end of the book just in case you don't believe me. Go to Matthew chapter 28, end of the book, verse 19. Everybody's looking at me and waiting for the karaoke screen. Anybody bring your book, your Bible, on your phone. Look it up, please. Don't just wait for him in the back, though. We appreciate the karaoke screen. Go there. Come on, quickly. Matthew 28, 19. What are some things that we will not get except from disciples? The Bible says, therefore, go, talking to the disciples, and make disciples of all what? Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Let me give you three things that Jesus will not do for you individually, but only through disciples. Number one, teach you. 
teach you. The Holy Spirit will teach you and help you individually. The Bible says in 1 John, you need no man to teach you, but the anointing who resides on the inside of you teaches you all things. That is not a contradiction to what I'm saying. Listen, God can teach you individually, but the teaching of being made a disciple must come through another person. Why? It's accountability. It is instruction personal, and then it is to your life, and it is visible with another person. You cannot be made a disciple by the Holy Spirit and taught to do that. You can be taught about the divinity of Christ, the doctrines of God. You can have personal experiences with God individually, but you cannot be trained to be mentored, to be made a disciple without a disciple doing that. How many know that makes sense? The Bible literally says you guys go and make disciples. Therefore, according to Jesus, you cannot be taught how to be a disciple unless a disciple is there with you. The second thing is you can't baptize yourself. You can't take yourself down to the liquid grave and go, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Okay, that was fun can't baptize yourself, and then you cannot be taught to obey everything. So you can't be made a disciple without a disciple. You can't be baptized without a disciple, and you cannot be taught to obey everything without a disciple because that involves relationship. That involves accountability. That's why the Bible says where two or three are gathered together, he's there in the midst of them because he's working through his church. Now go back to the notes, please. If you were hungry that day and you had been with Jesus for three days, the only way you were getting food is if disciples gave it to you. I wonder how that could be applied to our church. If you want food this week, spiritually, how are you going to get it? By disciples giving it to you as well as you personally studying, but the the life groups, the one-on-one discipleship, that's going to complement you. So remember, it's not a contradiction here. You learn things between you and God, and then there are other things, these some things that you will only get through disciples and people in your life. Can I hear an amen? Amen. So he gave it to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. Oh, can I give you another good one? Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Put it up there quickly. Give what and it shall be given unto you. Go to the King James for this one. You guys got to catch it in the King James. How does God give back to you blessings? How does God give back to you blessings? Does he just send the angel Michael to sprinkle pixie dust from heaven on you? Does, does, he, does he send just the angel Gabriel? No, listen to Luke chapter 6, verse 38 in the King James. Luke chapter 6, verse 38 in the King James, as he's taking his time up there. We're going to make sure you get it on your Bible. How many got it on your Bible? Somebody with the King James. You got the app? Put it in King James. And then read it out. One, two, three. Shall who give to your bosom? Shall who? Men. Men. Shall men give into your bosom. Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Shall who? Men. Men give into your bosom. How does God bless you when you pray? Through men. And their men is generic of humanity. When you're praying for a new job, is Gabriel going to hire you? No, a man's going to hire you. God's going to use a person. When you're praying for some extra blessing on that house you're trying to sell, is God going to have Gabriel come be your real estate agent? No, God's going to use a man, a woman, a person of humanity to be a conduit for the blessings. As a matter of fact, there are so many places in the Bible that teach us if we're not in a good relationship with those around us, God's hands are tied to bless us. 
In other words, if a man is not right with his wife, his prayers will not be answered. So the Bible says, you want your prayers answered? Men, be right with your wife and blessings will come to you. Come on, somebody. The Bible says that parents, if you frustrate and you exasperate your children, you then are under a curse of God. And so we have to understand that God uses people to bless us, not our source. God is my source. Hallelujah. People will come and go. Family can come and go. God is your source. But do not take that truth over here that God is my source. The anointing teaches me all things pertaining to my salvation. Don't take that truth and neglect the truth over here that there's things that God does through disciples and through his people. Amen? Amen. Let's go back to the passage. The the bread and the fish is blessed, and then it's given out to the disciples, and the disciples give it out to the people. The Bible says in verse 37, they all ate and were satisfied. After the disciples picked up seven baskets of broken pieces that were left over, the number of those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. You can possibly multiply that by three, so 12,000, 15,000 when you put women and children there. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he went into the boat and uh, uh, sailed to the vicinity of Magadan. Everybody say Magadan. Amen. So seems like everything's going good. Everybody should be cool. Jesus just did a great miracle. The Pharisees, they should lay off, right? That's what's supposed to happen now. Let's go to chapter 16, verse 1. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Everybody give me a womp womp. Womp womp. Do you understand now how we lead up to the crucifixion? At this point, about halfway in the story, the Pharisees, they're done trying to be cool with Jesus. Literally, they are just haters now. They're not even frenemies. They're straight up enemies. They are only looking for a time and a place to get him to slip up so they can arrest him. And eventually, they will get him on charges of blasphemy with the help of Judas. This is already repeated, by the way. So it's almost a yawn moment. They've already done this before with the give us a sign. What they're trying to do is say, Jesus, if you're the Messiah and the Messiah is greater than Moses, Moses split the Red Sea, do something like that, and then we'll believe. The Bible says he's already rebuked them for this in a previous chapter in Matthew. And so you can go back and look through our notes. We've already preached on it. But I love how Jesus repeats himself but adds a nuggie that we didn't hear in the previous one. He's like, I'm still going to give you guys this lesson whether you're listening or not. Look at verse 2. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. How many know how to judge basically what the day is going to be like by the weather you see in the morning? Now, of course, it can change in Chicago within a few minutes. We know that. Spring, summer, winter, fall, all in one day. No joke. We've been here. We've been here. We know how that works. But how many know, like, if you wake up and it's overcast, let's say, on a fall day. Let's say it's October and you wake up and you don't see the sun. How many know you're probably not going to see the sun the whole day? You're not going to see the, whole, the sun the whole next day. How many know the sun's going to be gone for a few days, right? How many know if you wake up and the, scar, the sky looks black and it's a little bit like, like dark outside? You're thinking it's going, to, and it's going to rain. These people were the same way. But look at what he says. He goes, you know how to tell the times uh, uh, of weather. Uh, you know how to judge weather by what's going on in the sky. 
You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, he said, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Now, everybody get this right here. I got two scriptures that I want you to write down, Haggai 2.9 and Malachi 3.1. Haggai 2.9, Malachi 3.9. How many of you have ever read the book of Haggai? Remember, you're in church. Don't lie. Raise your hand if you can tell us you've read the book of Haggai. About four, five, six. Can I get a seven, eight, nine, ten? Haggai, Haggai, Haggai. Have you read it? Haggai is a powerful book. It really is. It will surprise you about how fast it moves. Haggai chapter 2, verse 9, and Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, give the people of Israel a timeline with a deadline that the Messiah has to come by. And that is, the Messiah has to come by the time the second temple is around before it gets destroyed. Because when they had rebuilt Solomon's temple, known as Herod's temple, there was a promise that God himself was going to come to that temple and that the glory of that second temple was going to be greater than the glory of the first temple. How great was the glory of the first temple? When Solomon uh, inaugurated the temple on that day, the cloud of glory came down so strong that it filled the whole temple. The priests were knocked out. They could not even minister before the Lord. Now the second temple, they cried when it was inaugurated because there was no fireworks. There was no glory. There was no experience of God's presence. They were very sad and depressed. And so Malachi and Haggai were giving words of the Lord that, hey, don't be sad. This second temple is actually going to surpass the first temple because not just a cloud is coming down. I'm coming down into that temple. Haggai chapter 2 Verse 9, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Jesus is saying, guys, you're an oppressed people group. The Roman Empire hates you. They want to destroy you. This temple is probably not going to be around here very long, according to even your smartest people. And Jesus is actually going to tell them in Matthew 24, it's all getting destroyed. But he's like, playing upon their mindset. You guys wake up and check the weather and know what the rest of the day is going to be like. Don't you know that something significant has to happen in this temple soon? But you're missing it. Now look at what he says, verse 4. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of who? Jonah. Which what is the sign of Jonah? He was in the belly of a whale three days and then spit out alive. Jesus said in the prior explanation of the sign of Jonah, he's going to be crucified dead, put in the belly of the earth for three days, come out alive. How does that tie into this sign right here? The sign is going to be Jesus is going to come to the temple as the Son of God, equal with the Father, cleanse it as we know he's already done, and he's going to keep hanging around there and have some great moments. They're going to kill him because they think he's blaspheming, but he's going to rise from the dead and show he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They have to wake up to that reality. That's what he's telling them. And then Jesus left them and went away. Sometimes you got to leave your haters. Can I hear an amen? amen? That is another sermon for another time, but how many would come to that one? How many would come to a sermon tied that you got to leave your haters? Amen. amen. Okay, I'll make sure to remember that. Look at what the Bible then says. Just about when you were like, you know, I think the disciples got it now. Like, they're not the Pharisees, right? At least they're not these guys trying to trap them in his words. The disciples, at least they're doing the right thing. 
They're done being called stupid. They're done missing it. They're done messing with Jesus when it comes to feeding people. How many are just right about at this point going like, come on, disciples, let's get it. Come on, team. We don't have to strike out anymore, swing and a miss. We don't have to do that, but now watch. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Now, not a big deal. They were busy. They forgot to take bread. Not a big deal. Jesus is teaching a lesson that's going to have to do with bread. Watch what happens. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, I don't know about you, but I would pretty much think that if Jesus is talking about yeast with a people group, yeast being something that makes bread rise, I would think that has nothing to do with lunch. How many just would go like, I get it. Now, we get the ideas because we're watching back the story. Probably wouldn't be so smart then, so let's not make ourselves look too good. But they're about ready to blow it. Look at verse 7. They discussed this amongst themselves and said, Is it because we didn't bring any bread? Aware of this discussion, Jesus called them, You little people of faith. You runt believers. Another translation says, You of little faith. Put a period right there and just get this. A Canaanite woman who is called a dog even by Jesus, she said she has great faith. A centurion that had been a part of the oppressive class of Romans oppressing the Jews is said to have great faith. The disciples who have been with him are called um pequito, the little ones of faith. Oh, why are you talking amongst yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Can I hear an amen from all the parents in this place? How many parents have had to say to your children, what don't you get about this? How many of you have had to look at people on your job, in your company, around your normal everyday life and have to go, what are you not getting about this? How many feel sorry for the disciples? Y'all just think they deserve it right now? Come on, let's be honest. How many of you feel sorry for them? I feel sorry for them, man. I mean, I know Jesus loves them, but how many know their face is red? Have you ever been embarrassed? Have you ever done your best to do the right thing and it didn't work out right? Were you ever the one who raised your hand in class but had the wrong answer? <laughs> Come on. I mean, these guys are trying, but let me just say this. Jesus loves us enough to be real with us. So Jesus is not the one who gives everybody a trophy. Jesus is not like, Oh, that's so awesome. You at least tried. You tried to get where I was going. Thumbs up. No, he's like, what are you talking about? How in the world do you think I'm talking about your lunch right now? How does he have the right to rebuke? Because Jesus is always fair in his rebukes. In prior chapters, do you remember Jesus' parable that said, the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who took a little bit of yeast and worked it through 60 pounds of dough? How many remember that? He's already been parable-talking Jesus. The moment he takes something like yeast and puts it towards people, you're supposed to check in and go, okay, parable time. We're not talking about lunch. We're not talking about the tortilla. We're not talking about the bread here. We are literally talking about something that they teach or do that I'm not supposed to do. So the kingdom of God is like yeast working its way through the bread. I'm supposed to have kingdom teaching in me but I'm not supposed to have the Pharisees teaching in me. Everybody go, aha. 
So they catch a little rebuking right there. And then he says again to them, he says, or, uh, he says, do you still not understand? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? And how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? I love Jesus because he makes me feel normal as a pastor. I feel like when I read the Bible, I relate to Jesus. I'm like, man, Jesus knew how to be clear with people. He says, how is it you don't understand? He loves them. How many know Jesus loves them? Amen. Amen. How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It says, then they understood. How many know Matthew's writing this, and he's putting himself in the plural there? You know, it's like they then understood, which is really like, I was kind of not understanding either, but now I understand. You know, so he kind of like plays it off they, you know. I just love Matthew like he's not one of them. Matthew, you're one of them. Just put an eye in there every now and then. But it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. But, but I, know, I know that Matthew, the author, has been humbled as well. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast using bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. If I was to ask you today, what are some modern teachings of Pharisees and Sadducees, what would you give me? I talked about this last week. Some of you might say, well, that you have to dress up to go to church. That's a non-biblical teaching and a tradition. Others of you might say, oh, that women can't have a place in the ministry, that they have to only be servants to their husband. Yep, that's a non-biblical tradition. That's taken out of context. But how about a little bit more closer to home, false teachings that appear as biblical that are now being used to bring people further from God, not closer? How about this one? Nobody's perfect. You know, you, you, you know, as long as God loves me, I can be forgiven of all my sins and keep on sinning. Now, there's some truth in there, but how many know there's some yeast in there? Most of the time when people are saying, I can sin and still be forgiven, what are they saying? I don't want to be transformed. How about this? Don't judge me. Don't judge me. How many know there's truth in there, but the way they're meaning it, have that yeast in it, is basically saying, don't get in my business. So modern-day Pharisees are not just people looking down their nose saying you have to wear nice clothes or, you know, you have to oppress women or whatever. You can also be a Pharisee by saying sin is okay in the Christian's life. God's not going to judge you. Jesus is like your older brother who's never going to tell dad on you. Come on, you guys sometimes think about Jesus that way. He's thumbs up, homie Jesus. Like you could come to Jesus and be like, Jesus, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. Don't tell dad. Like, we think of Jesus like the cool brother with the Camaro. If you ever watched an 80s show, I was from the 80s, by the way. He's got the Camaro. He's got the mullet. You know, he pops up around the house every now and then. You know, he, he bums you a smoke. Don't tell dad. Is that Jesus? Don't tell dad. Is that No, Jesus is cleansing temples. Jesus, even after he forgives a woman caught in adultery, says, go and sin no more. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, I'm so much like the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen him. So there's nothing different about Jesus and the Father in character. So we got to be careful against the teaching of the Pharisees, especially those of us who have been around in church for a while. Anything that's not biblical and takes you further away from God falls into that category. How many are ready for the message today? Can I hear an amen? Let's look at now what Jesus says 
to his disciples. Verse 13 about who he is. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Somebody say socially aware. Somebody say emotionally intelligent. Jesus was socially aware. Jesus was emotionally intelligent. You have got to be comfortable asking others that you trust, who do people say I am? Those of you who work on your job get evaluated. But before you ever even go through an evaluation, you should feel comfortable asking your boss, asking your coworkers, who does everybody here think I am? Those who do not live with self-awareness are some of the most annoying people in the world. Can I hear an amen? How many know if you don't live with self-awareness, you'll never really have close friends? You will never experience a real close relationship or real success in life because you're always thinking about yourself in a way that others are not thinking about you. Jesus is not blind to what others are thinking about him. He is secure enough to ask his disciples, who do others say I am? I should feel comfortable to ask you as a church, who do your friends say I am? What do people in this community say about me as your pastor? Now, it doesn't mean they're always going to say good things. But I should be emotionally intelligent, self-aware, socially aware to hear the answers. So let's see if the people around Jesus' time understood who he was. Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Everybody go, er. Others say Elijah. Er, thank you. And still others, Jeremiah er, or one of the prophets. Er. Okay, so they blew it. But he was wanting to show them I'm socially aware. Of course, he never asks a question. He doesn't already know. He's our God. He's all-knowing. But the purpose for this was to show them, guys, I know they're confused. So once again, if you ask your friends, hey, what do you think about my church? And they go, that's a cult. That's no difference than them thinking the Son of God is the reincarnated prophet Elijah. People can miss us, but it's okay to get some real feedback. I can take it. And I would hope that eventually... People would get to know who we are, but I'm okay with people misunderstanding us. Notice, Jesus asks, and they don't understand him, and he's still okay with it. So this doesn't mean you have to be cool uh, and agree with every Yelp review or every Facebook comment and feedback. But just be, uh, but by asking, it does show you care. So I care about what you think. I really do in a lot of ways. If it's off truth, off base, I'm not going to take it very serious. Everybody get that? Jesus says, who do they say that I am? A bunch of weird people, uh, a bunch of weird things about great people in the past. Reincarnation is introduced here, and the Bible never even talks about reincarnation. Can I blow your mind right here? Jews at this time, as well as many rabbis today, and I just listened to one recently. Recently, I'm talking in the last couple of weeks, I listened to one. They believe, out of their own traditions, nothing to do with the Bible, that your soul can be reincarnated as different people, and then on judgment day, your different people will all come forth and then be judged. And so in the world to come, your soul can be subdivided by as many people as you once were in the past. And I had a guy straight-faced preach that as a rabbi. 
as a very intelligent rabbi teach that. So he was saying you could have possibly four to five to ten souls, uh, divisions of your soul, in the world to come, and you will have conversations with parts of yourself. So even according to this, it can be, a, it can be properly um, as an option, assumed here that they might have thought John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah were all reincarnations of the same exact soul that then on judgment they would all be judged individually for how they live and then be able to have conversations within themselves. Isn't that weird? That's weird. And Jesus is like, I'm none of that. I am not that. Let's keep going. But what about you, he asked. Once again, what did others say? Now the the question is, what do you say? And as a leader, I should be comfortable with what you say. Okay? Now, you should be closer to the truth about what you think about me. When you ask your husband, who do you say I am? You know, husbands, you ask your wife that. Who do you say I am? Your wife should be able to give you an honest answer. Everybody go home today and find somebody you trust and have them ask them that question and then listen to them. Ask your children, who, who do you say I am? Am I just a person that gives food around here or does your dishes or, you know, uh, does your laundry? Who do you say that I am? This is beautiful. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, praise God, he gets it right. Let's give it up for these guys right here. He's about ready to get it right. Come on, Simon. We're rooting for you. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And the church said, amen. Come on, Simon. You got one for the home team. Boom, disciples won. We got a point on the board. Jewish leaders still zero. Rebukes, though, are about 10. That's okay. We've got one point on the board, 10 strikeouts. Peter, our man, he got it. I got all these scriptures to show you that the Messiah is the son of the living God and never forget it. The Messiah is not just a prophet. He's God, the son in the flesh. They thought he was just going to be a prophet, though their prophets had prophesied he was going to be divine. And so when you study the scripture, they had it right in front of them, like Isaiah 9, 6. To us a son is given, to us a child is born, and he shall be called everlasting father, mighty God, wonderful counselor, etc. You know, we see that the prophets were getting it, but it was going right over these people's heads. And so he's not just the Messiah. He's not just our Gandhi. He's not just our civil rights leader. He's not just our brave heart. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, like what we would think of like a Luke Skywalker or whatever. He's a chosen one. He's a king ruling one. But he's not just that. He's the son of the living God. That means he has pre-existed before he has come down. He is actually our creator in the flesh, not the father, Though he is an everlasting father to us, a source of life to us, what father means there, but he is not the person of the father nor of the Holy Spirit. And we'll learn about how the Trinity works later on and how they're in partnership. But we already read it in the baptismal formula. One name of the father and of the son and of the Holy Spirit. Amazing. Look, let's, let's go on. Verse 17. I'm so happy for Peter. I feel like the home team got it. Let's just go. Let's just, you know, y'all have already read ahead. You know where we're going right here. But we got to bask in this. 
Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. How many know God knows how to teach us things? I didn't say everything has to come through a disciple. There are things only God can teach you, and that's who Jesus is. Okay, come on, let's keep it real. Like I said, don't, don't think I'm saying one thing when I'm not. I know that God can teach you when nobody else can teach you. My mother might have taught me things from the you know, time I was a small child about God, but it was only God himself that showed me and convinced me who he was. And that's what he says here. You didn't just learn this by flesh and blood or just reading a, a scripture or something, even though as powerful as it is, it's the voice of God. He said, you got this directly from the Father. And then here he's going to say something, and I want us to get it because this is where the whole entire split between Catholics and Protestants is right here. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter. Everybody say Petros. I tell you that you are Petros, a stone. That's what it means. And on this rock, everybody say Petra. Petra, I will build my church and the gates of hell, Hades, will not overcome it. As everybody knows, those are two different words. You are Petros. Those of you who are from Latin American speaking countries, words that end in OS, are they masculine or feminine? Masculine, same in the Greek. Words that end with A, masculine or feminine? Feminine, same thing in the Greek. He says, you are Petros. I am now changing your name from Simon to Peter. You're now going to be known as a stone, a building block. Is there anything here about a pope? Not one thing. Is there anything about Peter being in charge of everybody else and kissing a ring and dressing up like mother and then we call him father, you know, because they wear these long robes and, you know, flowery garments. No, no, no. What he simply says is, I'm changing your name, giving you a place in the church that I'm building and upon your revelation, this Petra, this feminine thing that you have just said is going to be where I build my church, the bride of Christ. Peter is not the rock. He is not the Petra. How many know if I called you Juanita, that's not, that's not a, a masculine name. If I say you are now Juan and upon Juanita, I'm going to build my church. How many know he goes, you lost me at Juanita. I get that I'm Juan, but you just went to Juanita. You are Petros, and on the Petra, I will build my church. Now he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And right there, somebody says, well, that sounds so special. Maybe he didn't do that for anybody else. Go to Matthew 18, verse 18. The whole church gets that, y'all. It's just Peter is now the first stone in the church that's being built on the Petra to glorify Christ. Look at it quickly, please. Look at just a two chapters later. Two chapters later. Look at what it says in verse 18. 
talking to the church. Truly I tell you, who's he been talking with up here? You can get the heading. Who's he been talking to? The church. Right there above it, just highlight it, church. So I tell you, the church. You can insert there properly. Whatever you want, bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven again. I love when Jesus repeats this thing so my Roman Catholic friends can get it. How many know they need to get it today? We love them. Come on, but they need to get it. Truly, I tell you, if two of you are on earth and agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Go back to the passage, please. When you go to the book of Acts, the start of the church, is Peter in charge? No, who's in charge of the church of Jerusalem? James, the half-brother of Jesus, who signs the document and writes the letter at the Council of Jerusalem, the first time the church has to settle an argument. Who's the one that writes the paper and sends it out with Paul to the churches? James. Who's the one that gets rebuked by Paul face-to-face and told that he's a hypocrite? Peter. So does Peter have any special place of authority in the church? No. As a matter of fact, go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. If Peter was a pope, don't you think in his letter to the churches he should have announced himself as a pope? Like, hey, guys, you know Jesus made me the pope. I'm writing you this letter, and uh, everybody has to listen to me because you know me. I'm the only one that's in charge here. Look at what he says. In chapter 2, verse 4, he says, as you come to him, talking about Jesus, the living what? Stone. What was the name Petros meaning? Stone. Like a smaller stone, and the rock is a bigger rock, like a cleft. So here we see the living stone, the great big stone, is where we're coming to, and Peter's a part of that. Isn't it something that Peter's name means stone or a smaller rock, and Petra means a huge rock, and when he teaches his people, he doesn't teach anything about him being a pope. As a matter of fact, he makes Jesus the great stone, and then he says, we as little stones all help build the church. Watch it. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living what? Living what? Living stones are being built together into a spiritual house to be a what? Holy priesthood. In the Roman Catholic Church, is everybody a priest? No, in this church, is everybody a priest? Yes. Isn't that amazing? Peter says we're all living stones. I was just the first one to be called a stone and have my name changed. But I'm not even the main stone. The main stone is Jesus. Verse 6, for in the scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion. Is that Peter being laid in Zion? No, that's Jesus. A chosen and precious what? Cornerstone, foundational stone. Now go to 1 Peter chapter 5. The end of the book. Does he say, hey, guys, you know, I'm a pope. I'm in charge. Let me tell you what I need you guys to do over there. Look at what he says. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow. What is he a fellow? Elder. How many popes are there at one time? Only one. How many elders were there at that time? Many. So what was Peter? Was he a pope or was he an elder? He was an elder. He says, I appeal to you as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be pastors, be shepherds of God's flock that are under your care. Let's go back to the passage. Is Peter a pope? 
Somebody say nope. Is Peter a pope? Amen. Do we love our Roman Catholic friends? Enough to tell them the truth. Amen. Pastor, you just think you're right about everything. Well, I'm right about what I'm right about. Show me where I'm wrong, and then I'll be wrong about that thing I thought I was right about. But I believe I'm right about what I'm right about. Amen? And the scripture kind of agrees with us. I think you can see it pretty clearly there. There's nothing to do with the Pope. The words are two different Greek words. One is masculine. One is feminine. Unless he's the first transgender of the Bible. The, the Bible's being clear. He's not that. And then the same thing that he's given in this passage, we're given in chapter 18 to bind and loose wherever two or three of us are gathered together. Then in verse 20, he orders his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the, the, the Messiah. Everybody say messianic secret. As we've talked about before, thank you. This is because Jesus was not here to be the Chris Angel magic show, Vegas show of the time that he lived in. Jesus wanted to keep this a secret because Jesus' purpose was not to come to earth to be worshipped as God. His purpose was to die on the cross for sins. If everybody thinks you're God, can they crucify you? How many know if I come over to your house and you know I'm coming, you're cleaning that thing more than you would just if you went home today? If everybody knows God's in town, everybody's acting different. He wanted them to treat him just like they would as if they didn't know who he was. He wanted them to show who they really were. And what they were were people who hated righteousness. And sadly, we were all part of that number. If we were there, we would have done the same thing. How many are ready for the sad part about Peter getting called Satan? Are you guys ready? Okay. Peter had his moment. But look at verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day to be, rise, to be raised to life. How many are thankful Jesus died for our sins? How many know if Jesus didn't die for our sins, there would be no forgiveness? But then Peter took him aside and began to what? Oh, Peter, you shouldn't have done it. Peter, he was being patient with you before. Peter, when you were called willfully stupid, that was him being nice. When you guys were called small people, impequito of faith, that was him being easy on you. But now, Peter, you pull him aside and you rebuke him. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. We're all going to hell and we want to. No, he didn't know what he was saying, though, did he? But that's what it meant. If Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross, we're all going to hell. So he rebukes him. Never, Lord. But he loves him. He doesn't want him to die. He doesn't have his mind on the kingdom, though. One of the saddest verses you'll read in the Bible, but yet it comes from a heart of love. Somebody say, Jesus loved Peter. Jesus loved him enough to call him Satan. Somebody needs to write that book. Jesus loved me enough to call me Satan. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Not today, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Oh, I feel bad for Peter right there because how many macho men and some tough ladies in here would have wanted to fight for Jesus not to go to the cross? You would have wanted to defend Jesus. That's your man. That's the one you love. He's done so much for you. You don't want him to die. But how many know that's in the flesh? 
And how often do we run away from our sufferings and go, never, Lord, I don't want to suffer. And God is saying, you don't understand. Through your sufferings, your faith increases. Through Jesus' suffering, we get salvation. Through our suffering, our faith increases so we can have a greater trust in God. Oftentimes, we're rebuking Satan, saying, get behind me, Satan, get behind me, Satan. And Jesus is going, it's not Satan. It is me. I had your boyfriend break up with you. Stop rebuking Satan. Your boss fired you because I let him. Stop rebuking me. You see, we live in a world where even Christians like, like Peter can think God is the devil and the devil is God. Peter was so switched up that he actually had in mind the very thing Satan had in mind. Isn't that just to us a wake-up call? You can be this close to Jesus and still take a mindset of Satan in your life. Now, some people say, was he possessed by Satan? No, it doesn't say Peter fell on the floor, started frothing and doing exorcist moves. Uh, you know, S Satan's not there, you know, speaking through him like he did with the man who would cut himself at the tombs. What we are supposed to understand by this is that Satan's influence is in Peter's mind and words. And remember, Jesus taught us that we'll be judged by our words. And it's from our heart that these words come. And so what we see is that the flesh is at war against the spirit. Even in someone as awesome as Peter, who just in verses prior was totally saved. Somebody say, so saved. He was so saved, man. Like he confessed Jesus as Lord. He knew who he was, the son of the living God. He wasn't just saved. He was so saved. And yet, in just a few verses later, he's being called Satan. I wonder if... Uh, Jesus is going to rebuke you today and say, Satan, get behind me for some of your thoughts or some of my thoughts. I wonder if we're thinking today about things that have to do with God and the concerns of God and the mind of God, or are we pretending to think about godly religious things, but really we are just carnal because I've heard people in this church tell me their parents try to discourage them from being in ministry because it's not going to pay you and you're going to waste your time. See, it sounds like a human concern that has some wisdom to it. Obviously, you have to work to pay your bills. But for somebody to put you down like that, get behind me, Satan. This person wants to do the things of God. Some of you here today may be going through a tough time in your marriage and you may have this real spiritual idea that you've concocted. Oh, I got it. I married the wrong person. I'm going to divorce them. That's how it works. That's how I get out of this. And then I marry somebody. I just married the wrong person. Instead of going, God, help me to be the right person in this marriage. Instead of saying you married the wrong person, ask God to make you the right person for this marriage. I wonder how many of us are thinking thoughts about our own future that have the quote-unquote idea of wisdom, but it's really fear. I can't give that to the church. We have to save up for retirement, X, Y, and Z. But really, it's fear. God's asking you to give. Because last time I checked, the devil never wanted you to write a big check to the church. Hello? Hello? Can I hear an amen to that? It's not like Satan is walking around for you today. Hey, I want you to give $1,000 to church. 
So how many know if you're being conflicted about being a tither or a giver or supporting something and you're saying, get behind me, Satan. You know I got bills to pay. God knows all that. You might have your mind on human concerns and not the things of God. Can I give you another LGBTQ, Rachel, would you come please? The community we live in today is so supportive of LGBTQ that you'll watch a show like America's Got Talent and I watch it with my kids and I can see it coming a mile away so I'm quick on that fast forward and it always starts with this young boy or a young girl and it's like, I was brought up in a home that I came out as gay or lesbian and I wasn't accepted and they didn't love me And so I had to fight to accept myself. And now that I'm older, I live on my own. And I'm in love with this person of the same sex. And I just want to be accepted by the world. And, you know, they'll come up and sing. And even if they sing terrible, you know, like Howie Mandel will be like, I'm so proud of you. Don't you ever change. And don't you let anybody tell you different. How many have seen one of those specials? And you just see it work up the emotions. And so what they're doing is they're concerning themselves with the human affair. Do I want people to be depressed and not love themselves? Absolutely not. Am I grieved by the pain of the transgender LGBT community? Absolutely. But is the solution to live in disobedience to God? Absolutely not. And so in that moment, what do do they want you as a Christian to feel? What do they want to hit you in the feels with? They want to hit you in the feels with, don't you dare tell them they're wrong. You'll be responsible for their suicide. You'll be responsible for their pain. You better stand up and clap. You better support this person. And we think that's godly. We think that's God. And Jesus looks right at that and says, get behind me, Satan. In the beginning he made them male and female, that the man would leave his home and become united to his wife, and the two would become one. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God. Ellen, Oprah, all of you in the social media world, you don't have in mind the concerns of God and of judgment and of what is coming upon this earth. You only are concerned with human affairs. Is it true Jesus will hurt on that cross? No doubt. Is it true that people have a hard time with their desires and their, uh, their things and their inward thoughts? Absolutely. That Jesus is not denying to Peter, it is going to cost me everything, Peter. It is going to hurt. I will sweat drops of blood begging my father for another way. True. It will carnally, fleshly hurt. But Peter... There is something greater than the flesh. Not my will, but his will be done. I will submit myself to the Father. And then what does Jesus say, hallelujah, to his disciples? Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross with me, and follow me. So what do I say to the gay community? I know it's going to hurt. You're going to face pain and emotional trauma. But deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus.
Jesus can relate to you in your carnal pain, but he can give you spiritual bliss like you've never experienced before. For whoever wants to save their life will lose their life. Oh, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be, Oprah, if you gain the whole world, yet you forfeit your soul? Or what can anyone give exchange for their soul? Your soul is worth so much to God that he sent his only son to die for you. Yes, he loves you just the way you are, but too much to let you stay that way. The first thing of Christianity is not be your best self or find your truth. It's deny yourself and come to Jesus' truth. Oh, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with the angels and then they will reward each person according to what they've done do you know that was an old testament prophecy in daniel 7 13 nothing new jesus is just saying that one is now here Daniel saw a vision of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, and it blew his mind. It said, my visions disturbed me. He was disturbed because he only thought he knew the Father, only the Father. And then here comes the Son of Man getting worship with the Father and has angels serving him. He says, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. They live to see this, many of them. His death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, and then the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And Peter, who was once called Satan, is the first one to stand up and start preaching. God can use you even if you've blown it, even if you've missed it, even if you have swung and you haven't even touched the ball, even if you've shot the ball and it didn't even touch the backboard. Are you listening? God can still use you. Be a part of his coming kingdom. Taste and see he's good. He's got a plan for you, amen? Let's stand up and give it up for Jesus today. He loves us. Come on, hallelujah. We love you, Lord. Band and altar workers, come, please. We're gonna close out today and get ready for second service. If you are here today and you feel like you have missed it, you are not alone. Peter missed it, and Jesus still used him. We're going to close out in prayer. So if you are here today and you have never known Jesus, just call him out today as your Messiah. Be the son. uh, Say you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, and be his child today. The Bible says if you confess your sins and believe in your heart, he is who he said he is. You will be saved. If you can make the confession of Peter right now, you will be saved. Those of you who are already Christians and you're like Peter, and you are swinging and missing. I have done it probably more than most of you here because I've been serving God over 20 years. Do not get discouraged at your misses. Do not get discouraged at the times you have missed it. Ask God today to use you. Lay down your life for him. We're going to close out with this final prayer. And those who want to come up and receive prayer, there are disciples here to help you. Now remember, you can only get saved by you and Jesus, but they will help disperse to you discipleship, teachings. And if you need to be baptized, they'll help you do that in the coming weeks here at this church. Father, we thank you that you sent the Son to teach us 
And it was tough at times to hear it. But we thank you. You loved us enough to be honest with us, to show us the way of the cross, the way of denying ourselves and experiencing your joy and your bliss and your love. I pray as we get ready to leave out of here today that no one will leave the same way they came that we will leave changed, right side up, rearranged, with a pep in our step, a frown turned upside down, that we will know you are good and you are always there for us. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Bless the Lord, saints. God bless you. Have a great week. If you need prayer, come on up. Otherwise, we'll see you at life groups. Have a great day. Second service, folks, feel free to come on in. Oh, come on, let's sing it, sing it.